Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Today we'll be covering the second half of Jacob's sermon to his people. Last time we talked about 2 Nephi chapters 6 through 8, where Jacob quoted several of Isaiah's prophecies to his people. Today we're going to cover chapters 9 and 10, the rest of that sermon, where Jacob discusses the atonement with his people, and also seems to get a little bit annoyed by him. But first let's answer our trivia question from last week. The question was, when did Isaiah die? I'll start by saying that we don't know with 100% certainty when Isaiah died. However, the consensus is that he died in roughly 681 BC, roughly 81 years before Nephi's account of the Book of Mormon began. Isaiah was active during the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was righteous and wanted to remove idolatry, high places, and other things associated with pagan worship from his kingdom. He was king when the Assyrians to the north were a threat to the land of Judah. We'll talk about this more in some upcoming Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. Hezekiah was succeeded by his son, King Manasseh, and Manasseh worked to undo the work done by his father. He reintroduced idolatry. He even put idols in temples. What does this have to do with Isaiah? Well, Isaiah preached against Manasseh, and tradition has it that King Manasseh killed him. But now we return to Jacob and his sermon to the Nephites. In the last few chapters, 2 Nephi 6 through 8, Jacob quoted Isaiah. Now in, in Jacob 9, he explained to his audience that the reason that he quoted Isaiah was so that they would remember the Lord's covenant with them and rejoice in the blessings promised to their children. Then he stopped talking about Isaiah and he turned to the topic of the atonement. In doing so, he was talking about a topic of interest to his audience. In verse 4 he says, For I know that ye have searched much, many of you, to know of things to come. Wherefore I know that ye know that our flesh must waste away and die. Nevertheless, in our bodies we shall see God. It says that in our bodies we shall see God. So the first aspect of the atonement that Jacob's going to address is the resurrection. We have a few incidents in the scriptures that talk about Christ allowing something to happen to him so that he can have the ability to do something similar to us. We see an example of this toward the end of verse 5. For it behooveth the great creator that he suffereth himself to become subject unto man in the flesh and die for all men, that all men might become subject unto him. So he subjects himself unto men, that all men might become subject unto him. We see a similar pattern in 3 Nephi 27, 14. And my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. And after that I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me. That as I have been lifted up by men, even so should men be lifted up by the father to stand before me, to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. So going back to verse five of this chapter, 
he subjected himself unto men, that men would be subject to him. In the second part of verse 6, Jacob said that because men are fallen, they are cut off from God's presence. So we need a way to be brought back to God's presence. And it's not just that. Our fallen or corrupt bodies need to not be corrupted anymore. Here's verse 7. Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement, save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon men must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to Mother Earth to rise no more. Jacob said that an infinite atonement was necessary, but he didn't really explain why. He didn't really explain why it needed to be infinite. It's not until Alma chapter 34 verses 11 and 12 that we learn that punishment on behalf of another person cannot satisfy the demands of justice unless it's infinite. It says, verse 11, Now there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood which will atone for the sins of another. Now if a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, Nay. But the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement which will suffice for the sins of the world. That's an interesting concept. The reason the atonement was infinite and the reason that Christ suffered infinitely on Gethsemane was not because we commit an infinite number of sins. It's because justice always demands that punishment fall on the guilty party, not someone else. So a vicarious sacrifice only works if we can break the rules. And we find in Alma 34 that an infinite sacrifice overpowers justice. Continuing in verse 15, it says, This being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, and bringeth about means unto man that they may have faith and repentance. So Christ's atonement, because it was infinite, was able to overpower the eternal law of justice and give place for mercy. The takeaway message from this, and it's kind of a humbling one, is that if Christ's sacrifice were for you and for you alone, it also would have needed to be infinite. His sacrifice for you was infinite. Your sins did not contribute to the weight of suffering that he had. He had to suffer infinitely for your sins, just as he had to suffer infinitely for everyone's sins. Jacob explained what our fate would be in the absence of an atonement. And our spirits must have become like unto him, and we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of God, and to remain with the father of lies in misery like unto himself. But, Jacob explained, God prepared a way for us to escape from, as he calls it, this awful monster, which is death of the body and death of the spirit. Spiritual death is the terrible devilish state that we just described in verse 9 in which we're shut out from God's presence and live in eternal misery. Because of the atonement, the grave must give up its captives and hell must deliver its prisoners. In the resurrection, bodies and spirits will reunite and men will become incorruptible and immortal. They will also have perfect knowledge. Verse 14 tells us that the righteous will know of their righteousness and the wicked will know of their wickedness. And with this perfect knowledge, in resurrected bodies, we will appear before Christ's judgment seat to be judged. 
Verse 16, And assuredly as the Lord liveth, for the Lord God hath spoken it, and it is his eternal word which cannot pass away, that they who are righteous shall be righteous still, and they who are filthy shall be filthy still. Wherefore they who are filthy are the devil and his angels. And they shall go away into everlasting fire, prepared for them, and their torment is as the lake of fire and brimstone, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever and has no end. The theme of maintaining our state will be repeated later in, in Mormon chapter 9, verse 14, which says that at the resurrection, he that is filthy shall be filthy still, and he that is righteous shall be righteous still. He that is happy will be happy still, and he that is unhappy shall be unhappy still. Returning to 2 Nephi 9, verse 21, Jacob says, Christ would suffer the pains of the entire family of Adam, and he cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffered the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children who belong to the family of Adam. And then concluding his thoughts, verse 23, And he commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And if they will not repent and believe in his name and be baptized in his name and endure to the end, they must be damned. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has spoken it. To be saved in God's kingdom, we must have faith, repent, be baptized, and endure to the end. But what of those who were not his saints? In verse 19 above, who did not know in what to have faith or of what to repent. Jacob taught that where there is no law given, there is neither punishment nor condemnation. This doesn't violate justice because, from verse 26, the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who have not the law given to them. Verse 6, earlier, talked about God's merciful plan. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we are unique in the notion of God having a plan. Adam and Eve didn't catch God off guard. He had engineered a solution to that from the very beginning. But notwithstanding there being a plan, he said, Woe unto him who knows better, who, quote, wastes the days of his probation, for awful is his state. Jacob warned particularly of falling into two groups. The learned, who think they are too smart to listen to God's counsel, and the rich, who despise the poor and whose treasure is their God. Then he pronounces woes upon several other groups, the deaf who won't hear, the blind who won't see, the uncircumcised of heart, the liar, the murderer, the adulterer, and the idol worshiper. Verse 38 is the subject of much discretion in um, scripture forums online. Verse 38, And in fine, woe unto all those who die in their sins, for they shall return to God and behold his face and remain in their sins. The discussion is about whether we will return to God's presence immediately, as that scripture seems to imply, or whether the scripture is referring to the sons of perdition, who will be unrepentant still at the final judgment when we appear personally before God. Alma 40.11 further complicates the question about whether we return to his presence immediately. Alma says this in verse 11, now concerning the state of the soul between death and resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, 
Yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. What causes the unrest is the phrasing that mankind will be taken home to God as soon as they are departed from this mortal body. Brigham Young and others have indicated that the phrase taken home is an idiom or figure of speech referring to physical death and that being taken home to God simply means to die. Jacob continued his sermon with verse 39, reminding his audience of the awfulness of sinning or yielding to the devil. He said, to be carnally minded was death, and to be spiritually minded was life eternal. That latter phrase, spiritually minded, emphasizes the importance of striving for better patterns of thinking. President Nelson recently encouraged church members to, quote, think celestial. But Jacob's audience might have felt he was asking too much, or they might have complained previously about similar requests and he could feel their resistance again because he said in verse 40, and you can feel a bit of a tone of exasperation here, do not say that I have spoken hard things against you for if you do, you will revile against the truth for I have spoken the words of your maker. I know that the words of truth are hard against all uncleanliness, but the righteous fear them not for they love the truth and are not shaken. Laman and Lemuel actually used similar phrasing to resist Nephi's teachings in 1 Nephi 16, saying that he spoke hard things against them. And Nephi responded like Jacob did, saying that his words would only be hard to the wicked. Jacob then extended an invitation. If you knock, he will open, unless you're proud and puffed up from learning to riches. Quote, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. Perhaps Jacob's audience was grumbling about the message he was teaching them, or Maybe there was some back-and-forth discussion with his audience because Jacob eventually became really frustrated with him. His frustration reached a crescendo in verse 44. Oh, my beloved brethren, remember my words. Behold, I take off my garments and I shake them before you. I pray the God of my salvation that he view me with his all-searching eye. Wherefore, ye shall know at the last day when all men shall be judged of their works that the God of Israel did witness that I shook your iniquities from my soul, and that I stand with brightness before him and am rid of your blood. Shaking one's clothes is a rather strong gesture, and it's not one that Jacob invented. A similar verse is found in the Bible, where Acts 18.6 said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go unto the Gentiles. In Bible commentaries, Shaking one's raiment is grouped with shaking off the dust of one's feet in protest. From Eliot's commentary for English readers on Acts 18.6, the author says, On the symbolic significance of the act, as done by a Jew to Jews, no words and no act could so well express the apostles' indignant protest. It was the last resource of one who found appeals to reason and conscience powerless and was met by brute violence and clamor. Jacob might have gotten tired of his people's resistance to his words and their complaints about being asked to do hard things. The shaking of his garments may have been a final way of saying, I've said what I can say and done what I can do. You're now responsible for your own actions. After symbolically shaking off the sins of his audience, 
In the following verse, Jacob encouraged them to shake off the chains of their captor. Verse 45, O my beloved brethren, turn away from your sins. Shake off the chains of him that would bind you fast. Come unto that God who is the rock of your salvation. So to recap, Joseph at this point had pronounced several woes against various types of sin and also against riches and sophistry. He had symbolically shaken their sins from him. It seems that this type of message might have been more severe than the other ones he had given previously. So in the next verses, he explained why he was talking about hard things. Verse 47, For behold, my brethren, is it expedient that I should awake you to an awful reality of these things? Would I harrow up your souls if your minds were pure? Would I be plain unto you according to the plainness of the truth if you were freed from sin? Behold, if ye were holy, I would speak unto you of holiness. But as ye are not holy, and you look upon me as a teacher, it must needs be expedient that I teach ye the consequences of sin. He then finished his day's address with some exhortations to his audience, reminding them to spend their time and resources wisely to pray and rejoice continuously. His last two remarks were that the Lord had promised that he would not entirely destroy their posterity and that he would finish his talk tomorrow. So we move to chapter 10, the next day, where he resumed teaching. Verse 1, And now I, Jacob, speak unto you again, my beloved brethren, concerning this righteous branch of which I have spoken. To provide context for what he would say about the Nephites, he first discussed the Jews. Christ would come among the Jews. They would crucify him. Had Christ gone to any other nation, Jacob said, and performed his mighty miracles, they would have repented and accepted him as their God. But the Jews gave in to iniquities and priestcrafts and refused to accept him. Because of this, they would experience destructions, famines, pestilences, and bloodshed, and those not destroyed should be scattered. But... When the day eventually came that they believed him to be the Christ, they would be restored in the flesh to the lands of their inheritance. God would fortify this land against all other nations. Any who fought against it would perish, and whosoever raised a king against God would perish. For God would be their king. God would afflict the descendants of Jacob's audience, or the Nephites, by the hand of the Gentiles. But the Gentiles would become like fathers to them, and would therefore become part of the house of Israel. Verse 18, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, thus saith the Lord, I will afflict thy seed by the hand of the Gentiles. Nevertheless, I will soften the hearts of the Gentiles, that they shall be like unto a father to them. Wherefore, the Gentiles shall be blessed and numbered among the house of Israel. That's a novel way of being adopted into the house of Israel. The Gentiles are not adoptive children, but adoptive parents. And, as adoptive members of the house of Israel, the land becomes the land of inheritance of the Gentiles. But there's a caveat, that those who want to dwell here must worship God. Verse 19, Wherefore, I will consecrate this land unto thy seed, and them who shall be numbered among thy seed forever for the land of their inheritance. For it is a choice land, saith God unto me, above all other lands. Wherefore, I will have all men that dwell thereon that they shall worship me, saith God. Jacob then finished his lengthy sermon with encouragement and exhortation. Verse 20, And now, my beloved brethren, seeing that our merciful God has given us so great knowledge concerning these things, 
Let us remember him and lay aside our sins and not hang down our heads, for we are not cast off. Despite being driven from their original land of their inheritance, God had not cast them off. In fact, he had led them to a better land for their inheritance. Jacob encouraged his audience to choose the way of life rather than everlasting death, and then closed with one of my favorite scriptures. Verse 24, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil in the flesh. And remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. I like this scripture because it speaks of reconciliation with God. I may be wrong, but I interpret reconciliation as reaching a state where your efforts are acceptable to him. We all fall infinitely short of perfection, and we have an infinite number of ways in which to improve. So where should we focus? What should we get better at? That verse is an invitation to find out what God wants you to do today. It breaks salvation into a series of achievable steps. It's one thing to aspire to perfection and quite another to actually expect it of yourself in all aspects in mortality. But although you may not be perfect, you can be reconciled to God by achieving the the daily milestones that he sets for you and keeping the Holy Ghost with you. Okay, we'll end by asking a question. And if you know the answer to this, leave it in the comments section. During the time of Isaiah, Assyria was the dominant power in the region. So the question is, what was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire? If you know it, put it in the comments. What was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire? And we'll see you with the answer next time. Until then.